Uh, I'm sure I'll be hearing one of those numbers very soon. We just had a baby. I'll show you a picture of him pretty soon. Uh, I'm sure I'll be beckoned SZ9 as well. But yeah, <laughs> I'm James Chambers. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we serve with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship here in Lake County area in greater Chicago land. Uh, my wife, Katie, can you just stand up and just wave to people so you can see who you are? This is Katie Chambers. Uh, she serves at Lake Forest College, bringing the gospel to uh, college students there. Um, I serve also with, with Lake Forest, CLC, many schools around here, uh, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to college students throughout. Um, and I just want to begin by just saying thank you to you all. You all have been uh, our supporters for about the last six years or so, five years. Um, and I just want to say thank you for your, your, your kindness, your prayers, of the different small groups that I've visited over the years, the, the amazing welcome you've given me as I've come in to just share what God's doing all around the city of Chicago and especially at Lake Forest College. Um, but, but more so than, than your, your, your financial support, I'm, I'm grateful for the people that I've come to meet and the people that have poured into my life. Uh, in particular, I was a student at Lake Forest College, and men like Armando Robles and Jim and Raman Vining would show up every Wednesday faithfully to set up tables outside of the cafeteria and, and would have books, Bibles, and just would ask hundreds of passerbys, do you have a desire to want to know who God is? As many would pass by them, over and over and over and over again, never even paying attention that they existed. For some reason, they kept showing up. And myself, along with at least four or five other people, have benefited for eternity because of it. And so I'm grateful for people like Armando, who you've all have sent out to do things like that. And I know he's serving as, as you all's missionary in other parts of the world now. But also people like Walt Liefeld, that when I graduated, he welcomed me in to the InterVarsity family and began just to, as a young missionary, young minister of the gospel, began just to pour love and encouragement into me. So thank you for the people you've actually sown into my life and into my family's life. And, uh, and now onto my family. You see the, the picture up here. That, that's our little one. Uh, he was born about four weeks ago. His name is James William Chambers the Fifth. So yeah, I think it's a kind of a royal sounding name, don't you? <laughs> Ever since I was a little kid, I wondered if I can get to about, you know, James the Eighth or something like that. I thought that'd be pretty cool if my wife has granted uh, my wonderful dream so far. So um, I know I think he's real cute. I know every kid, every parent thinks their kid is cute, but uh, about day eight, I, I looked him in the eyes and I said, you know what? You're a little too cute right now. Um, I think we're going to have to have this girl talk about age three or four, because we can't wait till you're 15, because at, at this rate, you're going to be a heartbreaker. So, <laughs> so yeah, this is my family, and we, we're very grateful for you. But as, as, I, as I get ready to go into God's Word, I, I just, what I want to do this morning, um, I want to just share my life. I, I believe that what, what, as I've, you know, worked with different churches and worked with college students around this nation here, and, and we talk about this, this topic of evangelism and, and sharing Christ's love with our friends and our, our coworkers, our neighbors, I believe above any kind of principled outline I can give you, I believe that I really want to encourage you that our God is God, that he is full of love, that he is full of power. And I want to share stories from my life, stories from the lives of, of people um, that you will, will know, um, from people from your own congregation. But I want to inspire you, and I want to challenge you to, to expand the horizons of your faith. Expand the horizons of your hope of what God can do, not just in this community and in the communities that are all around here, but in this community through you. And so as we go into God's Word, I just ask that you would open up your hearts to dream. God's dreams. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love that you have demonstrated 
in such a vast, great way. Above all things, Father, I pray that we would know that love experientially this morning. And as Jesus said, that as he has loved us, that we would love one another and we would give our lives, lay our lives down for those that we call our friends. So, Father, by your spirit, infuse your heart, your dreams, and your hope for all of those who are around us. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a cool summer's breeze of a night in Los Angeles, California, about 10 years ago. My friends and I were all college athletes, and we were gathering together because we had just had this great experience this summer where we wanted to really follow Jesus in a whole way in our lives. We were all college athletes, and so when we got to get ready to follow Jesus, we recognized there were things in our culture that were always pressing against this desire of ours to really want to follow Christ. And so as we were coming together to talk, you might call our little group of four an accountability group. You know, just pretty much trying to stay in this thing and not make God too mad. Because we were definitely given into so many temptations as college athletes. And so as we began to have this meeting, we were at a, I believe, a very expensive dinner for a broke college student of $7 a plate at a nice Italian restaurant. And we got our, we got our fill of some great food. All of a sudden, my friend Khalif has this yearning and this craving right after leaving the restaurant for a big, juicy hamburger. Now, Khalif does not eat red meat. And like I said, we just had a very expensive dinner as college students. And so I have no clue why he is hungry, but come to find out very shortly that this is a divine appointment that God set up for us at Rally's Burger Stand. So there we are at Rally's Burger Stand standing outside. And if you know anything about Rally's Burger Stands, the menu and everything is outside. You don't go inside like a McDonald's. And so we're sitting there, we're ordering our food. Khalif is looking up at the menu and he begins to say, I want a big Buford with a, you know, a large shake and all that good stuff. And, and all of a sudden, this, this beautiful voice comes right over in this area, says, hey, can I use your cell phone? Khalif turns and looks, and we turn and look, and we have to do a double take because there standing before us is this beautiful young lady who seemed to be older to us at the time, probably 25, but she's very, very scantily dressed. And so, of course, after our double take, we turn our eyes back to the menu very swiftly, and we begin to say, oh, shoot, because we just came from an accountability meeting. And we're trying to walk with Jesus. <laughs> so Khalif, Khalif says, here, here, take the phone, take the phone. And he just kind of goes like that. And as we're listening to this young lady's conversation, we begin to find out that she's been stranded out here at this Rally's Burger stand by Los Angeles airport, and her ride is re refusing to come and pick her up. But as we continue to listen, we find out that this is no ordinary phone call, and this isn't just an ordinary refusal to come and pick up, pick up a young lady. We come to find out that this young lady has been out working all night walking the streets of Los Angeles, scantily dressed, trying to make a living by offering her body to whoever will take her. Instantly, something inside of my heart rises up. And I say, Devon, Khalif, do any of you know how to share the gospel with anybody? Have you ever shared the gospel before? Devon, you got saved by reading the whole Bible. You know something about it. How do we do this? He said, James, man, I don't, I don't know. Well, Khalif, do you know how? No, I don't know. Well, James, you've been in church longer than all of us. Do you know how? No. All I know is that in this moment, we cannot send her back the way she is. 
compassion arose in my heart. And so I, I say, Crystal, would you like to come and get a burger with us and just have some dinner? She says, no, I'm not hungry. I said, well, do you want to come and watch us eat? And she says, yeah, sure, why not? So she comes and watches us eat, and we sit down, and she begins to share her life. And I'm asking her questions about, you know, who, who are you? And, you know, how, who, what family do you come from? And all these kinds of questions. And every question I asked seemed to be shooting myself in the foot because every answer she gave revealed the immense amount of pain she was in. So tell me about your family. Well, my mother kicked me out, and she doesn't love me. Oh, sorry I asked. Um, well, you know, are you in school right now? Are you in college somewhere? Well, you know, actually, my teachers told me I was too stupid, so I dropped out of high school, and no, I'm not in school. Oh, messed up again. Um, why are you working the way you're working? Well, because my mom kicked me out and I have nowhere to live, and I have no way to make a good living, because of an education, I have to live some way. And as I'm going in circles around questions, trying to figure out how do I share God's love in Jesus Christ with this young lady? I'm hitting a wall because I don't know what to do. And then I hear the Holy Spirit whisper or just kind of impress upon my heart, ask her this question. Do you know God loves you? And so I say, Crystal, look, look, lift up your eyes. Do you know God loves you? Look at me. Look at me. Do you know God loves you? And I began to share my life and how I found out God's love for me just recently as a college student. And Devon shared his life and suicidal attempts and how God brought him out. And Khalif began to share his life. And over and over, we shared our, the testimonies of our God's love towards us and what he did in Jesus Christ on the cross to forgive us of everything we've ever done that we can come into a fellowship with him again. And at the sound of this love, she did not respond in a great, excited way. She responded by saying, why? Why does he love me? Nobody has ever loved me. And we continue to share more stories and continue to share more of what we understood about God's word and who Jesus Christ is and the love that we felt. Then eventually, two and a half hours later, this young lady, Crystal, decides, I want this love in my life. I surrender my life to Jesus. I give my heart to him. Come in and fill me. And this young lady who I thought was a 25-year-old was actually 16. And I, in that moment, watched life, power, hope, and a dream into her eyes. And her whole countenance changed in one moment. In that moment, for Devon, myself, and Khalif, the kingdom of God was revealed and unveiled before our eyes. Because I said, we thought that the faith was just simply about, you know, stopping doing bad things or stopping or starting doing the good things, you know, missing the bad place and getting to the good place in the end of all of this, when all this is over. But we found out that actually the kingdom of God was real with true power, with true hope and relevancy for a young lady and for everyone in the world. And God wanted to use us to bring that power into their lives. I believe that what I began to experience in having my eyes open was something like what the disciples in the passage we're about to look at would begin to experience for themselves. They begin to have the kingdom of God unveiled before their eyes, that this Jesus they're following was not just a carpenter, that this Jesus they were following was not just a really good rabbi and a teacher, but that this Jesus had the power to raise a young lady from the dead two chapters earlier, had the power to help a mute man speak for the first time, had the power to help the deaf hear, and their eyes are being opened. And as we go into the passage, this is how it reads. 
Matthew 9, 35, and Jesus went throughout the city and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As I mentioned, these disciples are beginning to have their eyes open to who this Jesus really is and what it meant to follow him the day they dropped their nets. And as the kingdom is being unveiled and as their eyes are being opened up, I believe they experienced what I experienced 10 years ago. But I would be lying to you if I was to say that over the last 10 years that that kind of passion, that kind of excitement, that kind of hope has been on an ever-increasing trajectory Because in actuality, the mundane realities of everyday life and our routines and my personal routines have drowned out that passion, have muted that excitement. And apathy has begun to set in at many times in my life. And the definition of apathy is this. It is a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm, or a lack of concern. And I believe that as I've worked with people in this area of sharing the gospel, that I believe that apathy in this particular area is a result of two simple things. One, just, just simple ignorance, just that we're blind, we may not know. We may not know what's going on in people's lives. We may not really see it, and that's, that's okay. There are times when we feel like we can't relate to the problem, so we may feel like that the problem to them really isn't a problem. There really isn't suffering going on in their lives, maybe. The second thing that I see that apathy is a result of is, is a little more active. It's an active choosing to ignore what I do see in their lives. An active choosing to ignore the reality that they don't know Jesus and the hope that we have in him. This comes because at times we can feel overwhelmed and inadequate, like we don't have enough to be able to offer them. And in this culture with the way people kind of push back against things of faith or religion, we, we feel that way a lot, inadequate. We can also feel we choose to ignore because, honestly, we're just consumed in our own agendas and our own plans, our own schedules, our own things that we're going after, and we just don't want to be bothered. But the Scripture does not say this about Jesus. The Scripture does not say he was apathetic. The Scripture says that he showed much interest, much concern, and much enthusiasm as he looked upon these crowds. Why did he show this kind of concern? Why did he have this kind of compassion? The Scripture says in verse 36 that clearly he saw the crowds. He looked out and he actually had an intimate acquaintance with the crowds. As you read the chapters leading up to this, you see Jesus sitting down at dinner over and over again, sitting in the courtyard, sitting in the temple temple grounds, fellowshipping with people. He knows their stories. He knows their hopes and their dreams. He knows their plights and their struggles. He sees the crowds. And as he sees the crowds, he recognizes one thing it says, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. As a good shepherd knows sheep, he knows that these sheep are slow to learn from their failures. And he knows that these sheep are constantly straying and can't stay on a straight, narrow path very long. He also knows that, like sheep, they copycat each other and they just simply will follow each other to their own destruction. And yes, even like sheep, they're strong-willed. You can even say stubborn. Even though he knew they were strong-willed and maybe even stubborn, he did not stop. He said, these young people, 
These people need a shepherd. I am looking for someone to take the role of shepherd in their life. I am looking for someone to take the role of guide in their life to show them the way to true life. And so a question on Jesus' mind in this moment is, where are the true shepherds? Where are those that would take responsibility and care for those that are all around them? And as I've had conversations with many people over the years, hundreds of people who, don't, who are far from God, who don't know Jesus, I've gotten more thank yous by the end of the conversation. I've gotten more questions like, what church do you go to? If that was a church like what you're talking about, I would be there in a heartbeat. And I've come to find out that there's a yearning inside of the lost all around us that are looking for people to come with life. That would care, that would bring in responsibility, life. The life of our God. Jesus is inviting us to passionately love him and passionately care for those around us. As we continue on in the passage and we, and we think about what the disciples may be experiencing, I believe that they could have had maybe two responses as they looked out at this great crowd. Because now, I mean, when you think about the press, the press of the crowds that Scripture describes, this is no small matter. Heaps and droves of people pushing upon them, thousands at a time, 3,000, 5,000 would follow them at any given uh, period of time for three days without food. So this is no small matter. Thousands of people pressing probably. I believe that these disciples could have reacted in two ways. Number one, intimidation. And what would the voice of intimidation whisper to disciples in this moment? It would whisper things like this. You have nothing to offer this crowd in Jesus. And even if you tried they probably would never even receive it. Intimidation may whisper, well, you know, these people are the experts on their own lives. And anything you think you'll say or offer would just simply be naive, simple, and ignorant. If they weren't intimidated, maybe they fell into the other typical response that I've seen is judgment. Maybe they judge the crowd because according to Deuteronomy 28 to 30, it's very clear that they're probably having this harassment in their lives because they were in sin. Well, what does the voice of judgment say? It says this, that they are responsible for the problem and the suffering that they are in. The voice of judgment will whisper and say, you're getting what you deserve. The voice of judgment will say things like, oh, yes, there's a way out. There's a way of hope, but you probably need to stay there a little bit longer and learn your lesson. When I think about the voice of judgment, I think about my, my young friend, my young friend Andrea. Andrea is a, is a young lady that's very special and dear to my heart. We were working together at a restaurant right here in Lake County. And as we were working together at this restaurant, I come to find out that, that this young lady who used to work at the restaurant before I showed up has been gone for a year and a, year and a half, has now returned. And we meet at the Coke station getting Coke for our tables at the exact same time. Let me tell you a little bit about Andrea. Andrea had just come back from New York City. She followed her girlfriend out to New York City with plans of hopes, uh, of dreams, of, of, of life in the big city because she's from small town Wisconsin. And she's looking for ways to branch out and experience life. So she and her girlfriend go out there to, to New York City. And as they're out in New York City, they begin to, want, to have a desire to want to know more about God. As they want to know more about God, they visit some churches. And as they visit these churches, they get met with snickering, they get met with haughty attitudes and judging looks. And like any normal human being, they didn't feel welcome, and so they never returned. But more than not returning, they felt like that's how our God is, that he is not welcome people. He's judging, and he has no love. 
And so I meet her at the Coke station. I'm running in from this side of the alley. She's running in from this side of the alley. And we meet and say, hey, I'm James. What's your name? I'm Andrea. Oh, she says, you're James? I said, yes, I'm James. Why? What's wrong? Oh, you're the minister. Shoot. Yes, I'm the minister. What did I do this time? And she says, it's nice to meet you. Goodbye. And goes back to her table. In this moment, I make it my personal life's mission for the next year and a half to love this young lady, to show love, to show love, to have compassion. And so I begin to walk with her over the next year and a half, and I'll conclude this story in a couple moments. That is what the voice of judgment does to somebody. Turns them off from our God. So what does this passage reveal as a cure for judgment and intimidation? It's very simple. It says in verse 36 that Jesus was moved with compassion. Compassion is this, is the definition of compassion. It is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, but it's accompanied with a strong desire to alleviate their suffering. So compassion doesn't feel and enter in and become just sympathetic alone. Compassion goes into the problem with someone in order to bring them out. And it says Jesus was moved with this kind of compassion. He personally identified with the people in the crowd to such a degree that he took on their pains, their confusion, their hurt, their sicknesses, their diseases onto himself and says, no need to worry, I'm here. I'm here. You can be free very soon. And I believe that as Jesus took this disposition, as we look at verses 37 and 38, that this disposition of I'm going to bring them out and help them infuses hope and dreams inside of Jesus' heart. He is able to see from heaven's perspective and he no longer sees in an earthly way. He begins to look at them and it says in verse 37, he makes an uncanny, unforeseen declaration. The harvest is plentiful. That in the midst of the harassment and the helplessness of these people, he says they're actually ready for the kingdom of God to break into their lives. The harvest is plentiful. So from heaven's perspective, Jesus is able to see above and beyond their fears, their doubts, their anxieties, their questions, and says, you are ready for the love of my Father. And he begins to move as a result. And I believe that Jesus is inviting all of us in this room to have this kind of compassion, to cultivate this kind of compassion, that we would no longer be intimidated and no longer judge, that we would no longer be apathetic and believe that our God is puny and unable to help those who are around us. So here's some questions that I want to ask you. Three simple questions. And I actually want you to, if you write them down, you can think about them however you want to engage, but engage with yourself. I want you to think about the needs of your friends. The evidences of pain, confusion, unfulfilled hope, lack of truth. In light of these needs, how have you been tempted to respond? In apathy, intimidation, or judgment? Second question, what aspects about Jesus' personality, you have just finished this, this whole study on the life of Jesus Christ. What aspects about his nature, his character, are you hoping that your friends would come to experience and know personally in their own lives? 
Number three. And this is the challenge. Have you really gotten to the place where you hold and host their pain, their confusion, the lack of truth in their lives in your heart? To the degree that you have taken personal responsibility to bring Jesus, his life, and his love to them. So you remember Andrea I was talking about at the restaurant? As I got to know her, I began to, to, to really come to love this young lady in, in, in a most beautiful way. Uh, she, I mean, she's like my sister. She's one of my best good friends till today. So um, <laughs> she loves people like no one I've ever seen. She's so compassionate. She's so sensitive to the needs of everyone around her. She was the star of that restaurant. Everyone raved when she was coming back into town. I began to hold the confusion that she had about who she wanted to be in this life and how she wanted to be in this life in my heart. I began to hold her pain and the, the understanding that God does not like her in my heart. And as I began to hold these things in my heart, I really wanted her to know that Jesus was more than just a belief system, more than just a legislator of how to behave, that Jesus was a real person full of life and love for her. And as I prayed week after week, month after month for Andrea, compassion began to grow in my heart. And I had to ask myself this question. Was I going to allow the pain and the confusion and the hurt that she had to tell me she was not ready for the gospel? Or was I going to do like Jesus said in verse 37 and believe that the harvest is plentiful and ready, that she is actually ready and the pump is primed for her to receive the gospel? Now, while, while I like to, you know, be very uh, strong and confident and say yes, with an emphatic yes, I believe Jesus' words over what she has demonstrated towards me over the last year and a half, I would be lying. It was a constant battle back and forth. Who will I believe? What I see or what heaven says? I was very easily intimidated and distracted. How do we fight this? How do we fight this back and forth, this war that's going on? How do we cultivate this compassion? Kevin Harney, who wrote a book called Organic Outreach for Ordinary People, had this little rule that he made up in this book called the One Degree Rule. And the key question in this One Degree Rule is this. What is my evangelistic temperature and how can I raise it by one degree today? So instead of trying to go from zero to 100% in evangelistic fervor, what can I do every single day just to raise it a little bit? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through these five steps and how I relate it with Andrea. So the first one, he says, engage in prayer consistently. Pray for God's love to enter your friend's heart and to be poured out into your heart for them. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give them eyes to see and for you to see beyond just this physical realm as I've been talking about. That's what I began to do. Week after week, I began to pray for Andrea to know the love of our Father, that her pain will be removed. Number two, make time in your schedule to hang out with different people, the people who don't know Jesus. I'm amazed that when I go around different churches and I, and I, go, and I go, yeah, go around different Christian communities, how, how, how insular we can be. 
and how we, we just don't have time for other people outside of the faith because we're with Christians five times a week. Sunday, then small group, then the basketball league, and then the mom's league, and all these different things. And, and so it's kind of like, like, except for the nine to five slot, we're, sque- we're squeezing non-believers out of our lives. And so making time to do what you love with people who don't know Jesus. I love basketball. So what I do is I purposely go to the place where all the people who don't know Jesus play. In my neighborhood, that's the park. And I purposely play there instead of in the nice gym maybe where other friends may be playing that I know. Number three, tell stories amongst yourselves that will ignite your heart with passion. I found the other Christians who were at this restaurant, and I began to share. There was like three of us. We would share every single day what God was doing inside of the lives of those we were sharing Christ with. Number four, make celebration a normal part of your culture. What we began to do every time we share these stories, we would celebrate very, very hard the small victories in their lives. You would never guess the question that Andrea just asked me last night, Carol. You will never guess the kind of challenging that she's feeling and the wrestling she's actually engaging with the gospel instead of just shooting it off. And we would just celebrate very hard. At Lake Forest College in particular, we throw a birthday party every time somebody gets saved. We, got, we, got, we had so many people get saved in a matter of a month and a half that we thought we had to end up raising money just to buy the birthday cakes. We would celebrate hard. And as we celebrated, it became a normal part of what we look forward to on a weekly and monthly basis. Number five, spend time reflecting on eternity. What does it actually mean if Andrea does not know the love of our Father in Jesus Christ? What does that mean for her eternity? Nothing grieves me more than to know that she would not know my father's love now in this time and in that day forevermore. So as I finish Andrea's story, I begin to do these different things. After work, they would always invite me out to go shoot pool or to go hang out at Chili's or at Baker Square to get some pies and things like that. This one particular night, it's about 11.30 at night, I'm, I'm on the late shift, and I am just dog tired. I am ready to go home. As I'm getting ready to go home, I want nothing more than just to have a beeline out that door. Don't want anybody to talk to me. All of a sudden, a whisper in my heart. The Holy Spirit says, it's time. And me and my personal relationship with God, I turned and said, it's time for what? I'm going home. <laughs> I'm going home. <laughs> I'm this late. <laughs> um, and he says nothing in response. But around the corner comes Andrea. And as she comes around the corner, she says, hey, James, table 74. We're eating dinner at table 74 at 1130 at night. And I say, oh, this is what you're talking about. It's time for. So I go have dinner with them. After dinner, they decide they want to go out for some drinks and to hang out at Chili's restaurant. So I go over to Chili's restaurant. I order a Coke, and I'm just sitting there and talking. Now it's about 1 o'clock in the morning. And they said, you know what? Let's go get some dessert. So they decide to go to Baker Square over here in Libertyville. And as we go to Baker Square, I'm like, it's time for what, Jesus? Because the time is passing, and I am tired. (laughs) As we go to Baker Square, we end up coming back to our restaurant's parking lot. And Andrea says, James, before you go, can you get into my car? I said, sure, what's up? She gets into my, I get into her car, and she says, you know, I've been watching you. I've been watching you over the last 10 months. And over the last 10 months, I've watched how you've never judged me. I've watched how you enjoy life and you have fun. I watch how you love, unlike any other person I've seen love. I watch how you serve, how any other way, like actually how I serve, she said. She's an amazing server. Not serve table, but serve people. And she said, James, if your God is anything like you, I want him. 
do you think he would accept me? And over the next hour and a half in this car, between the tears and the laughter, the tears and the laughter, me sharing Jesus' love, me sharing what he was about, some more tears, some more laughter. I'm sharing my life. She's sharing her heart. Eventually, she comes to the place where she says, I want this God in my life. I choose him right now. And in the car at 3.30 in the morning in this parking lot, she gives her life to Jesus. This young lady began to be so on fire for God that she went to her, take her nephew to church away from her mother, who is not following God at all and is, is, is ramming all these ungodly thoughts down her kids', her kids throats, saying that God is mean, he wants nothing to do with you. And Andrea is saying, you know what, he is not like that. Come with me, I'll show you. And his 10-year-old began to come to church with me. And we would go out to, to uh, Egg Harbor right here in Lake Forest, and we would have breakfast, and we would get to know each other. And she became a witness and a light to her family who has never known God. What are we going to choose to believe about the harvest? Are we going to allow the voices of this world and of our culture declare when someone is or is not ready? Are we going to allow the pains and the questions they have to declare that? Wrapping up with this, when you look at what Jesus did, he calls his disciples and says, look at these crowds. I have compassion. And in order to fix the problem, he does not wave his hand and speak the words that he spoke to start this whole world in creation. He does not do that. He does something so unthinkable. He says, disciples, come to me in Matthew 10, verse 1 and through 4. In Matthew 10, 1 through 4, he calls the 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits, over diseases, and to say, what I have and who I am, I give you the ability and the delegated right to operate. Go into this harvest that is ready. No matter what the culture is saying, you have my authority. And he calls the 12 different personalities, different strengths, different bents, different ethnicities. And he says, the 12 of you, I want the 12 of you to go as a community and to love the people around you. Declare, heal, show them that there's a God who cares. And the second thing that he gives them in, in verse 1, it says, beyond the community of themselves, it says is authority. This word authority is exosia in the Greek. And this word shows up three different times in ever-widening influences of cir circles of influence. Right here it begins with the 12. And it means this word, delegated right to have mastery over a, a, a sphere. That's what it means when you look it up. A delegated right to rule and to govern. He gives it to the 12. In Luke 10, he gives it to the 70 and says, do the same thing. And in Matthew 28, after he arises from the grave and he comes in glory after, uh, after dying on the cross and showing that he is truly having victory over sin and hell, he says, I give you authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. An ever-widening influence of this delegated right to operate. And he said that to his church, us today. You have the authority, you have each other to go into the communities all around you, not by yourselves as lone rangers, but in community to bring the loss into the love of our Father. Jack was a young man, an older man, I should say, who was in your congregation. He was brought to your congregation by his wife and put in the small group against his own desires. And as he kind of begrudgingly went through the small group experience, he began to realize, you know what, there's something different about the people in this small group. They actually love me and accept me. The leader of that small group was a guy named Richard. Richard said, you know what, 
I'm friends with Richard. He told, he's telling me the story. Richard said, James, you know what? Honestly, I was intimidated. I was intimidated by Jack because he was an older businessman. 15 years or so older. He had more success financially. His kids were older. It just seems like he's more wise. I didn't know if I could actually bring the gospel to him because I was intimidated. Over time, this young man, or this older man, Richard, uh, Jack, began to relate with Richard and say, can I go to coffee with you? I have questions about God. And as they go, sat over coffee over months and over months and in and out of the small group life family experience, this young man says, you know what? I want to receive Jesus. Richard explains the gospel to him one final time. And he decides, I am going to say yes and surrender my life. After he gave his life to the Lord, he began to be a witness to all the businessmen, the bankers down in Chicago, and began to lead other very wealthy bankers to Christ. He began also to go to his family and began to lead his family to salvation in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but right now to this day, he is still walking with Jesus, and he is serving on the national board of a Bible distributing company that sends Bibles to places who don't know anything about our God. This is what your congregation is about, and this is what your congregation has done and is continuing to do. As you all move into December and into January, the small group season that, 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 that you're going into, invite friends to explore who God is and to receive what the love of God is like in your family. As you get ready to go into Alpha, there is no greater or I should say easier way to invite someone than to invite them to a dinner, to have good food with wonderful, loving people that you are, and to explore and ask questions that they've always wanted to ask about spirituality. I want to commission you in the authority of Jesus' name and say you have authority from him to go forward into your communities and bring the love of God to your friends and to those whom you've not yet known. What about Jesus do you hope your friends would believe and receive? You are the answer to Jesus' cry that their hopelessness would be fulfilled. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your adoration. I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would mark us that we would never be the same the way I was never the same 10 years ago. I pray that, 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 that lives would be transformed. And I pray in Jesus' name that we above all things would know the love that you have for us and the love that you have for this world. Order our steps and bring us into your hope that salvation is for all. In Jesus' name, amen.